The Good Nature Podcast comes to you from Conservation Optimism and its founding partners, Synchronicity Earth and the University of Oxford. Welcome to Good Nature, a podcast where you can join us for uplifting chats that shine a light on conservation challenges. In each episode, we interview an inspiring conservationist. Our fascinating guests come from many backgrounds, artists, scientists, activists, and many more. I'm Sophia, a PhD student focusing on marine conservation. I love doing science and telling stories through film, writing, improvised comedy, and now podcasts. And I'm Julia, a science communicator and journalist. I'm passionate about sharing what people are doing to make the world a better place. Hey, Sophia. Hi, Julia. Today, I'm really thrilled to let you know that we're having Meredith Palmer on the podcast. Meredith is a researcher at the Pringle Lab at Princeton University, and a lot of the research she does is about predator-prey interactions. So she looks at how predators change prey behavior. She looks at stuff like demography, the impact of coexistence and ecosystem functioning, and uh, lots of different aspects of these interactions. Meredith is also an expert in citizen science. So basically working with people who don't have formal scientific training to conduct scientific research by processing photos from her camera traps, which she puts out in the Serengeti in order to record lots of exciting animals like zebras and lions and civets. And if you've never heard of citizen science, Meredith is going to give us a bit of an explanation of what it means. But what you need to know is that she has various projects that you can actually take part in. And so one of these projects is the Snapshot Serengeti. Another one is called Snapshot Safari. So if you type these projects online, you'll find all the information and how you can join. And Meredith's work is really interesting because it's this balance between doing a lot of tech so for example making these cameras work and collaborating with partners in the tech sector such as google DeepMind, microsoft freak labs wild labs and others but then the other thing that she does is actually empowering people and working with people who come from all sorts of backgrounds in order to do this conservation work meredith is really passionate about outreach and science communication and she also cares a lot about growing the next generation of scientists including women and other underrepresented groups So she's going to tell us a little bit about why that is so important to her and some of the work that she's doing to make sure that comes to the fore and happens. I can't wait to hear a little bit more about that aspect because as a science communicator, I always love when scientists do outreach. And if you know us already, you know that at Conservation Optimism, we believe that everyone can be a conservationist. So let's hear what Meredith has to say about all these different exciting projects. Hi, Meredith. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to hear about all the work that you're doing. So our first question is quite a general one, really. Why do you think that it's good or important or useful for people who don't have formal scientific training to participate in scientific research? So citizen science is, of course, a way for people, no matter what your background, no matter what your expertise, no matter what kind of training you've had to partake in real, meaningful, authentic science and research. So there's a whole bunch of scientists out there. We are, many of us, are completely inundated with data as part of the technological revolution, especially that's happened over the last decade. 
researchers are now collecting far more data than you know a single researcher or a single research team can process on our own. And so we often turn to the general public. We start crowdsourcing the processing of this data so that we can quickly go from you know, a camera trap image or a satellite image or an audio recording and turn that into the numbers that we can crunch in order to do our research and our conservation. And a big component of the citizen science for me isn't just using citizen scientists, you know, as a machine that is part of it. And it's a part we're extremely grateful for and excited about as scientists. But like you said, it's also a really cool way to bring people who might not have experience with science into science. And I think it's been particularly powerful during the, the lockdown because people were stuck at home and they were looking for something meaningful to do. And I know that we work quite closely with Penguin Watch and they have this citizen science part of it where people can uh, look at photos and say if they see penguins. And I know that it's really boomed during lockdown because people really wanted to be doing something. Definitely. And in lockdown, you know, we're feeling listless. We can't travel. We can't go out and see things. We can't go into nature. Like you said, a lot of people might feel like they don't have a sense of purpose and you can essentially go on a, I call it an armchair safari. Like all you need to participate in my kind of citizen science is you need a computer or a phone. You go to our website, you download our app and all of a sudden you're in Africa looking at cheetahs and lions from the comfort of your own home. And at the same time, you are doing incredibly important work, work that allows us to do kinds of research and conservation that simply is not possible without the help of citizen scientists. It sounds like there are just so many opportunities, like you say, both for the people who are participating and being citizen scientists, but then also for the researchers. So I'm curious, what made you decide to use citizen science in your research? And what were some of the challenges that you found in making that project work? So our projects, I think, are very exciting because we were sort of at the forefront of using online citizen science to help process data. So I work with a project called Snapshot Serengeti, and we started out over 10 years ago with a large-scale camera trapping project set up in the middle of Serengeti National Park in Tanzania. And it's this beautiful, pristine ecosystem. So we go out and we have 200 camera traps and they're triggered by heat and motion to take pictures of passing wildlife. So they're running 24 hours a day, taking pictures of anything that comes in front of them. Like I said, we've had this one camera trap grid out in the field for 10 years now. That's tens of millions of photographs, but you know, we're quite literally drowning in wildlife pictures, which is amazing because it gives us this really fine scale, high resolution look at what entire communities are, of animals are doing in this ecosystem. But we can't analyze a photograph directly. And so I once calculated, I did this calculation, um, if I was to take a year's worth of data collected from this one camera track grid in Serengeti National Park, and I had to sit down and process all of that data myself and say it takes, you know, like 10 to 20 seconds for me to look at each picture and write down what's in it. And if I'm working eight hours a day and if I'm working seven days a week, so no weekends, 52 weeks a year, so no sick days, no holidays, no time off, it would take me something like seven or eight years to process a single year's worth of camera trap data. So many of our research teams are just, you know, a couple of scientists, a handful of researchers 
we don't have the capacity to do that ourselves. Um, and another, you know, very important driving factor of the, this kind of data collection is that we use this data for conservation. We use this data to evaluate what happens if we put up a fence or increase our anti-poaching or reintroduce a predator. How does the system change? What do we need to do to protect this community? And if I'm not getting that data back, you know, until several years later, I can't react and respond and adapt and to do conservation effectively. And so we turned to a platform called the Zooniverse. And the Zooniverse had just done this really amazing thing with images from the Hubble Space Telescope. So they had a project called Galaxy Zoo, where they took images from the Hubble Space Telescope. And there's some things that the human brain just does really, really well. So image pattern recognition is something that, you know, our brains have evolved for millennia to be amazingly good at. But computers and things like that aren't super good at that yet. So Galaxy Zoo took all these images from the Hubble Space Telescope and put them online and asked people to just identify galaxies. And this was really the first online citizen science project where we were crowdsourcing image data to people on the internet. And it was a massively huge success. So we created this project called Snapshot Serengeti. We put a year and a half's worth of image data online and it got processed in three days. <laughs> so now we have camera trapping grids, not just in the Serengeti, but we have them in Mozambique, we have them in South Africa, we have them in Zimbabwe, we have them in Botswana, we have them in North America. We've been able to scale up this effort, which is producing exponentially more camera trap pictures but again, with the help of citizen scientists, we're actually able to process those images at a pace rapid enough for us to, to get use that data in research and conservation. Are you able to share with us some of the exciting findings that you've unveiled in these different locations through citizen science? So our Serengeti project, we've had a lot of really great papers come out. So as a, as a scientist, um, the scientist part of me studies predator-prey interactions. And so we've been able to do some really fascinating work looking at how prey animals navigate a landscape in order to avoid predators. And this may sound like a very simple question, but if you think about it, we're studying an incredibly complex system. And without the camera traps, I wouldn't be able to study where hundreds of zebra go, I wouldn't be able to study what lions do at night. For the most part, researchers don't go out into the Serengeti at night. <laughs> We'd be eaten by a hippopotamus, you know, like we don't know what goes on at night. Uh, camera traps have revealed a lot of nocturnal behavior that was previously unknown. We had a study that was actually, this is probably my favorite study that's come out of our Serengeti project. And this was a discovery made by citizen scientists. So we had some citizen scientists flag this really, really weird behavior in some of our nocturnal camera trap data. They were looking at pictures of giraffe at night and noticing that there were these weird things hanging out on the bottom of the giraffe. We discovered that there's this species of bird that rather than, you know, like going to go nest in a tree like a normal bird would do at night, they would instead roost in the armpits of giraffe. Who would have thought to even look for that? No one goes out into the field at night in the most dangerous time, you know, poking around under giraffe looking for birds. That sounds amazing. So many different projects and so many 
interesting species as well that that must be really interesting for all the different citizen scientists to do that it was really important for you to show that everyone can be a scientist and i've seen on your website that you're heavily invested in growing the next generation of women and underrepresented groups in stem could you tell us a bit more about that aspect of your work and why it's important to you that's such a great question. Thank you for highlighting that because it's something that's very important to me and to my philosophy of doing science. I'm a woman, I have purple hair and tattoos, and I am a doctor and I am a scientist and I do conservation. And if I can be a scientist, you can be a scientist. And I think there's really two or three ways that I work to, to grow the next generation of scientists. We do a lot of work in Africa. So I'm incredibly privileged and grateful to be able to go to Africa and conduct research and help support African scientists in the incredible work that they're doing. And so some of what I do when I'm in the field is not just running around checking camera traps and changing batteries and, and getting SD cards, but working with local scientists, working with local students, doing training exercises and workshops, trying to make sure that the continuity of these research and conservation projects is in good hands. These people on the ground are the ones, this is, this is their wildlife, it's their backyard, they deal with the causes and consequences of conservation. And for conservation efforts to work, I think we need to do a much better job, we, me being speaking to all of the Western scientists out there, of making conservation a collaborative effort. So the capacity building is incredibly important to me, and it's ultimately our goal to hand over the ownership and the running of all of these camera trapping grids to local scientists, because they're the ones who need this data to make change in their ecosystems. As a woman in science, I'm very passionate both about bringing more women and more diverse voices into science, and also making science a supportive place for those people once they get here. I don't know about either of your experiences um, as women in science, but it's not as easy as it should be. I'm not saying that it should be easy, but I think there are a lot of barriers um, faced by women and other minority groups in STEM. I mean, honestly, like I never had a dream to be anything other than a scientist, but I couldn't have done it without the support of other women in STEM. And I think it's really important for us to build each other up as women in STEM and support each other. And I mentor a number of women, um, graduate students, undergraduate students. I think we need to show the world essentially that women are an important and integral part of science. So it's not just women doing science, but also women talking about science and speaking to the public and being a face for the work that we do. The Citizen Science Platform is not only a way for me to show other women and girls that they too can be a scientist, just like me, but it's also a good way for people who might not have the opportunities or the privilege to engage in scientific experiences to get some science experiences. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and I mean, I'm glad you raised these issues about being inclusive and about creating opportunities for science to be available and something that that a lot of different people can participate in what makes you optimistic about the future of nature honestly it's the passion of the citizen scientists i feel that when i was doing 
strict ecology in the field, watching forests get chopped down and my study animals go extinct. It's incredibly depressing. It's hard and it wears you down and it's hard to find those little sparks of optimism. And one thing that, about working with citizen scientists is that they have that optimism. They are so excited and so keen. These are people who are dedicating their own time. You know, they could be doing anything with that, you know, half hour that they spend looking at your camera trap photos. And instead, they're doing conservation work freely of their own incentive. And I get to interact with those people. I get to talk to them on social media and through our message boards and in person. And they are just so enthusiastic and so keen and so passionate about what they're doing and what we're doing. And it just brings you back to life as a conservation scientist, seeing how many people out there actually do have hope and are willing to take it into their own hands to try and make a difference. It is amazing to see how many people are keen on doing it. I've been on Zooniverse and there's lots and lots and lots of projects and they all find volunteers to do them. So it must be this incredible number of people overall doing citizen science of some sort. It's, it's really amazing. Another wonderful thing about citizen science, there's something for everyone. There's projects where you can transcribe Civil War diaries or old ship's logs or where you can help fold proteins or figure out how malaria works. So much going on, it's really impressive. And I think we've got one more question for you. I have a feeling it might be a difficult one because you've already mentioned lots of different species. But if you could make a case for only one species to save, what would it be and why? Oh, I've been dreading this question. To be honest, it's such a different way of thinking from how I approach conservation. I've been privileged to work with many fascinating animals. I've worked with everything from fish and frogs, monkeys and, and lions. But really when I'm doing conservation, I'm thinking about wildlife communities. I'm interested in all of the relationships between species. And this is such a cop-out answer, but it doesn't really matter to me if the predator is a, a lion or a tiger. I'm just interested in how that big cat interacts with whatever its lunch is. I think that's fair enough. We will accept that answer. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. No, thank you so much. And actually, we've got a very nice voice notes from Sosha, who is 8, and Rohan, who is 10. And they've been participating in the Wildcam Gorongosa for about half a year. Take a listen to see what they had to say about it. Hi, I like being a citizen scientist on Wildcam Gorongosa because we get to learn all about new animals and identify them. Here's my brother. And I'm also a citizen scientist. And the reason why I really like it is because it gives us something to do while, the, while we're in the quarantine. I think... Me and my family love identifying animals for wild cam Goran Gosa, and we feel like it brings us together. Such an interesting answer to that last question. I've really been thinking about whether we can change that question or update it in some way to be more inclusive of the different types of conservation that people are doing. For sure, I think we've had various people now struggling or saying that they think they might be cheating on that question so i think it might be time for an update so if you have any suggestions on how we could update this specific question please reach out to us we'd love to hear from you and you can find us at conservation optimism on twitter instagram and facebook we'd love to hear from you i felt like meredith raised 
such a range of interesting points. A lot of them around inclusivity and conservation and just thinking about how different people can participate in the scientific process and how citizen science can allow people to do that potentially when they wouldn't have been able to before. And I think it's also really rewarding actually for people who take part in citizen science because you can make really interesting discoveries like the one that she mentioned about this bird living under giraffes armpits. It's things that you might not imagine and and yet you're, you know, in your sofa looking at these photos and being like there's something a bit odd here. The other thing to think about is that amateur science used to be much more of a thing. You definitely didn't need to have scientific training in order to collect data that's relevant. I mean, for example, there was Henry David Thoreau, who was a writer who lived on Walden Pond. And I remember going to Walden Pond and actually then reading some scientific papers where they had taken all of his notes about when things flowered. And now that's been used to understand changes in phenology so the way that plants are responding to different seasons and like cues potentially in response to climate change and he didn't have scientific training and then also most women in history who were interested in science or wanted to do science didn't actually have access to scientific training so people who ended up contributing a lot to science for example Mary Anning who uh, collected a lot of amazing fossils. She collected the first plesiosaur. She had very little education at all. At the moment, like in our kind of day and age, science is seen as something that you do having had like a very strict educational path, but that hasn't always been the case. And actually a lot of really amazing discoveries and specimens and data have come from people who didn't have that sort of training and who were just interested in the natural world and in the things that they were seeing and they went out and just collected that. That's amazing. And I think that's one one aspect of citizen science that I really love about how it's empowering everyone to just be a conservationist. And we were giving a, a tour of the Natural History Museum at Oxford recently, so a conservation optimism tour. You can find it on YouTube if you want. And as part of this tour, we were showing a specimen that they have that has been collected by a little girl who was, I think, like less than 10 years old. And she just found that species that hadn't been recorded in Oxfordshire for absolute ages and just brought it to the museum with her parents to see what what it was. And then it was just very surprising. So as you said, these discoveries as well by people who are not trained scientists keep happening. And I think that linked to something that we've not yet mentioned in this episode, but Citizen science is not just an online thing. So in this case, the project that we talked about are online citizen science, but you can also be an on the ground uh, citizen scientist. So for example, every year you can look in your garden and say the species that you've recorded, or there are some campaigns to look at butterfly species. And you know, you can use apps or sometimes you just go on a website. And it's Another really good way if you want to, you know, get muddy and have a bit more of the on the ground experience. That's another way as well that you can get involved with citizen science. Absolutely. I have worked on citizen science projects in the past and it's really cool to see how people can be so passionate and just kind of like show up and get involved in data collection. It's interesting, though, to think about how in this pandemic, I think it's just changed so many of the ways that we do things and citizen science and in particular this project seems to just have been so well poised for this moment to take advantage of the way that people are sitting at home and can contribute. 
100%. We've been told that the, the project, the number of people doing citizen science for the specific projects that Meredith work on tripled during the lockdown. So we've seen these massive booms of people using it more and more. And I think it's just because, as you said, we, we're discovering all these different ways to do things. Virtual is becoming more common. And so now you're like, well, if I'm to sit on the sofa because I can't really go out, then I might as well look at photos of animals and plants and just be useful for these research projects. I think it's wonderful that people without leaving their house at all can actually have a positive impact in terms of conservation research. I mean, I think in a moment when so many of us have felt so frustrated and maybe like hemmed in in a bunch of ways to actually still be able to have these impacts and to do science is so cool. Well, on that note, Sophia, I think that's it for this episode. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This episode was funded by an ESRC Impact Acceleration Account Grant through the University of Oxford. Original theme music composed and produced by Matthew Kemp.